With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Curiosity Killed Nightcat. This is the true crime companion podcast to Nightcap with Nightcat on YouTube. This is an episode that was previously recorded when the show was called Saturday Morning Serial. Enjoy. The following program may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. It's the Saturday Morning Serial. They're great. Death waited in the dark at the hands of a man they called the Night Stalker. Always have to be lucky charms. Theodore Robert Bundy, you are charged. Two counts burglary, two counts murder in the first degree, three counts attempted murder in the first degree. I'll plead not guilty right now. The refrigerator where Jeffrey Dahmer kept body parts. They're magically delicious. I am prepared to die if you say it is necessary. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Silly rabbit. I was just reading this morning that psychopaths are the most attractive uh, type of man out there mm-hmm. for, for the ladies. Yeah. Psychopaths. They, they don't have all that uh, self-doubt. Keeping them down. The People like confidence, man. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it talks about, how they're so confident. And uh, they're usually more of maybe a bad boy. Yeah. Or you feel like they might cheat on you. And for some reason, that's exciting. What? Yeah. <laughs> they might murder you. I don't know. Well, most psychopaths are not like murderers. Mm-hmm. We, we throw that term around. It's actually a very small po- percentage of the population that actually are psychopaths. Um, which by the way, you, did you know you can't be diagnosed with psychopathy? That's not like in, in a, that's not a medical disorder. It's not from the DSM-5? Yeah. So psychopathy is something that they use to describe people with different personality disorders. But, uh, essentially it just means that you have, uh, little to no empathy. Like you don't really care about, uh, the feelings of other people. It really comes down to empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you also, uh, typically will have a higher sense of self. Like you believe that you're the most important thing. Like when you go to sleep, the world stops. Yeah. So uh, we throw that word around, but like it's a small percentage of people. It's an even smaller percentage that are murderers and criminals. There are a lot of psychopaths that you just deal with every day. Well, they actually say most of your CS, uh, CEOs. CEOs, so business executives, because mm-hmm. they're not afraid to cut, be cutthroat, getting yeah. their way to the top. I know. Not a CEO, but there's someone in this building that is definitely a psychopath. Just the way they are. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same thing. And like, or or politicians, high a percentage of politicians are are, are psychopaths. Yep. They say that surgeons are. There are a lot of surgeons who are psychopaths because in order to cut into somebody, like you have to stay so far removed 
that oh, you totally. can't you, like you can't put yourself in that position. Psychopaths okay are great for that sort of I thing. I want my surgeon to be cocky and yeah. uh and really yeah. not have a lot of empathy. I want them to be almost like a robot. Or yeah. first responders, police officers, yeah. fire, uh, and especially emergency medical services. Sure. Those are all psychopaths because when you get to a scene, you have to remain cool. So if you're if you're throwing out your uh, heart, uh, you know, wearing your heart on your sleeve. That'd be me. Sad. Oh, you're dying. <laughs> oh, you're exactly. Just, this is gross. Oh, dude. Dude, you know what's going on to you right now? Exactly. <laughs> so, so, like, they might seem a little gruff, but that actually makes them a lot better at better their job. Have, yeah. Psychopath, psychopathy is a very fascinating topic. What do you got today, Jackson? All right. So I do. I know we did our warning at the top of the show uh-huh. before the the intro about how this is not a show for children. This is not an episode for everybody. Um, this is going to be a particularly difficult episode because we will be talking about um, child sexual abuse. Okay, we'll be talking about um, sex work. If you can't handle child abuse, sexual abuse, anything like that, this might not be the episode for you. All right. But well then. Well, you got to uh, stick around. Sorry. Say goodbye to the two of you. I'll tip my hat. It's been a <laughs> you good don't have day. an option. You're not you going anywhere. Okay. But You're the button I, guy. <laughs> and and typically for Saturday morning cereal, I pick stories that are not overly graphic. Yeah. Or or but this is just. I think it's so important. Um, and I think this is, we're really on a turning point in how we treat these kinds of cases. Okay. Um, particularly when it pertains to sex work. Um, that. I think that this is probably one of the most important cases that has ever been tried in our time. Um, and it's going to set a precedent for a lot of cases moving forward. Interesting. So it, this is a very important case. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. Uh, but it's the case of Centoya Brown. Centoya uh, Brown, she was uh, 16 years old when she was being sex trafficked and she killed one of the guys that picked her up. Wow. So there's a, I'm going to get into a lot of the guts of it. But she wrote a book while she was in prison um, called Free Centoya, My Research for Redemption in the American Prison System. Um, I got an advanced copy of it, luckily, and read through it. It's, it's incredible. It is, I, I have to start there by saying it is a great book. Really? Um, and, and hearing the story from her perspective, if you have a certain opinion on, on sex work and, and that sort of – you should read this book because – it might change your outlook on it, um, and we'll we'll kind of get into that as we get in there. But there's there's a huge difference between what people consider prostitution and sex trafficking, and those lines get blurred. So that's really what this story is kind of about, in my opinion. Okay. Um, but it's it's a great book. I did want to start by saying though that I this is the book was really my only source for telling this story, so it is told from one point of view. Sure, and every story has multiple sides. Yep. So there might be things that are not entirely accurate there, because they're, we're relying on Centoya's memory mm-hmm. of what happened, and you know, try as you might, people cannot be objective about themselves. Of course not. Like you, you, you can only tell your story from your perspective. Mm-hmm. So when I tell you the story, take everything I say with a grain of salt, but I am apt to believe what she said because she's, she's also very upfront about her own feelings and her own mistakes. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Centoya Denise Brown was born January 29th of 1988. Uh, her biological mom uh, was a, a black woman. Uh, she was a sex worker. She was also a victim of human trafficking. Her mom um, was a sex worker. Her mom, well, yeah, her mom was a sex worker, but not of her own free will. And we'll get into kind of the difference okay. in, in a little bit. 
But her mom, her biological mom was a sex worker. She drank through most of her pregnancy with Centoya. Um, so there, in her in Centoya's defense later, when she's going through her trial, her defense attorneys actually use that as part of the reason. They're like, she's on the fetal alcohol syndrome spectrum. Sure. Like, she might not have any physical disabilities, but all that drinking had a toll on her mental health and her mental stability. Yeah. So um, that's that's part that's part of what feeds into what ends up happening. Um, and after Centoya's born, Gina starts smoking crack um, and getting into too much trouble to really be able to take care of her. And you don't start smoking crack after you've had a baby, honestly. Yeah, you were probably smoking crack with that yeah. baby, but from the sources that I read, they claim that it started after. Okay. Um, she eventually did the right thing and gave Centoya up for adoption. So Centoya is is very young. Um, I don't know the exact, but I think she was not even a, quite a year before Gina, her mom, gave her up. She's adopted by, like, two awesome. They're great people. Um, she has a mom and a dad. She, she, in the book, talks about how these parents, her adoptive parents, would give her anything she could ever possibly need. Like, yeah. they, were, they were really great to her. Um... But that doesn't stop her from dealing because you, when you're raising kids, you can protect them and you can take care of them at home. But when they go to school, you, unfortunately, you have to just let go. And it's the scary part about being that's a parent. the worst part. Yeah, because you can only bubble wrap your child for so yeah. long. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah, why you see parents in the parking lot crying. <laughs> right. Yeah. Every year. Yeah, your influence really ends when they walk through those doors. There's yeah. nothing you can do for them. They have to figure it out on their own. Uh, Centoya hits school age and she starts going to school and early on she starts getting ridiculed by the other kids because she has really light skin. She's a black woman but she's really light skin because she's mixed raced. Okay. Um, and her parents, her adoptive parents are both really uh, dark, have dark complexions. So everyone asks her um why are you white? And everyone's calling her the white girl. And she she eventually just feels so alienated that the other kids see her as the white girl and she gets angry and yeah. she starts really resenting all these kids. Um, she finds out that she's, that she's adopted and that kind of makes sense, but it doesn't stop the harassment. So she starts having uh, behavioral troubles and it starts small with little things like vandalizing property or they, uh, her and her neighbor kids, uh, her schoolmates got into a, a rock fight and she accidentally lobbed a rock right at this girl's head and she started bleeding. But because of those little incidents, which, by the way, all kids get into, I mean, who hasn't been in the fight that got a little too rough or sure. something? Yeah. Um, but... Regardless, the parents started to label her as the bad kid. They wouldn't let their kids hang out with she her. She became that kid. She's the oh, bad kid. Once you get that label. Oh yeah. Yeah, and she talks about that a lot in the yeah. book. And uh, spoiler alert: we're gonna we're gonna interview her at the end of this. What? Uh, yeah, we we have I have her for an interview later, so she's gonna actually call in. Oh, that's cool. We're gonna be able to talk to her about her perspective. We don't get a lot, so I'm filling in some blanks here before we talk to her. But okay, it's gonna be. Oh, I'm so excited. So uh, she. Once she says, she says that once she gets labeled as kind of the the outsider and the bad kid, there was no real incentive for her to try. So this is exactly this is the quote from the book. I could feel them whispering about me, the weight of their judgment heavy on my shoulders. No one said it to my face, but the message was clear. I was no good. 
Their judgment became a self-fulfilling prophecy. If everyone already thought I was bad, what was stopping me from doing what everyone already thought I was doing? Yeah. And I got to tell you, I have, I have, quote, bad kids in my family mm-hmm. um, who, to this day, because of that label, they, they, there was no incentive for them to try because no one ever gave them the benefit of the doubt. And if anything went wrong, even if they weren't involved, they got blamed for it. Um, and it's led to, you know, a lifelong struggle with addiction, dependency issues, abuse issues. That happened to me on a very, very small scale. I remember I was blamed for toilet papering a house and it was not me. I did not do it. But you were the bad kid. So you know what I did? Hmm. I went out and I toilet papered it. Yeah. I was like, if I'm going to get blamed for it. Yeah, I better get to the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So she... she starts stealing stuff and it starts small. She steals a $2 choker from Walmart, just puts it in her coat. Yeah. Uh, her mom ends up washing her coat, by the way, finding it and then marches her back in and makes her return. Oh, to no Walmart. way. Yeah, yeah. It's a good mom. Good mom. Yeah. But uh, she, she, things really come to a head when she finds some no dose pills. Um, no dose are just caffeine pills. Um, so, like, really, they're they're nothing. It's just, it's not different from drinking a cup of coffee. But because the school already had something out for her, they were looking for a reason to get rid of her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she ends up getting expelled for having these no-dose pills on her person. Well, then she goes to an alternative school, and that's when things really start to get bad. Because now she is in a place surrounded by other troubled kids. And, I mean, I... I don't know this for sure, but you can make the assumption that had she not had those sort of influences, then she there's always a chance that she could have turned around. Because Centoya's smart. When yeah. she starts school, she's in an advanced uh, like placement. She she's a she's a gifted student, so she's in these gifted classes. And uh, because of a few behavioral issues, she gets kicked out and just thrown into a into the garbage, basically. And once and, you're just a bunch of people who are already kind of being pushed down, next thing you know, and and they well, start getting your problems then, together. Yeah. They get together, and then things start snowballing yeah. really quickly. Um, so she gets kicked in and out of detention centers and alternative schools. Um, one of these detention centers, it's like the worst of them. It's called Omni Center. Um, and she she talks about how she learned really quick that if she wanted to survive Omni Center, she was going to have to learn how to fight. Because these girls were just beating the crap out of each other really? every day. Well, the boys were doing it, too, but they weren't yeah. together. So... Um, yeah, these girls were just, it was brutal. It was mm. violent. It was, and so when you're trying to get better, that's not the place to do it because right. no one's cracking down and stopping you from, from getting worse. So uh, she hits a breaking point eventually, and she's like, I need to get out of here or else I'm never going to survive. So she escapes Omni Center by running through a, like, she waits for the teacher to get distracted. She has a plan with all of her friends. She she has this boy that's a classmate um, who is no longer in the Omni Center. He's on the outside now, but she uh, manages to get him uh, to meet her in the parking lot. She has a friend that said that she can crash with her. Uh, and so the plan was she was going to distract the teacher, and then she jumps out a window. Jumps out a window, runs as fast as she can, hops in this boy's car, and they take off. Wow. Well, um, she is, he's driving her, and they go, start going the wrong way, but she doesn't really know that because, you know, she's like, four, I think she's 14 at this point. Okay. She doesn't know where they're going. Um, and he's driving her to his house. He goes, I'm sorry, I just have to make a quick stop before, before and then I'll take you over to, to Peaches and Trina. 
And so they stop, and she goes into the house with him. It's where he's living at the time, and he pulls a condom out of his pocket. And she... That was like her first experience with transactional sex. She's He's like, I, I rescued you from this place. Exactly. You owe me this. He said, place. he basically, yeah, if he said, if you, I'm not taking you anywhere until you have sex with me, until you pay me what I'm owed. And uh, so she says, trading sex for a ride to the projects was just what I had to do. I felt nothing as I lay on my back waiting for it to be over. I was on autopilot almost as if I weren't there. Again, she is 14 years old. Yeah. So this isn't her first time having sex, but this is the first time that she's she's exchanged yeah, mm-hmm. exchanged sex for, for something that she needed. Um, and he does follow through, and he actually takes her to stay with her friends. But she, her friends, it's this group of, of young women and, and teenage girls who they all, have, they all kind of crash at one or two apartments. Um, and they teach her, basically, that um, if she needs anything or wants anything, all she has to do is sleep with a man and she'll get it. So they, they start teaching her how to stay quiet, laugh at men's jokes, you know, flirt with them at bars. If she wants food or drugs or alcohol, she can have anything she wants as long as she flirts with men for it right. and sleeps with men. Um in fact, one of them said, Trina, her friend Trina says to her, men are never uh, monogamous. As long as you're not their side chick, you're golden. The point isn't a relationship. The point is to uh, is what those men can do for you. No man should ever get to have sex with you without giving you what he owes you. You have God's gift to man, and you're just sitting on it. You can play with it, you can give it away for free, or you can get paid for it. So this older woman, a worldly woman, yeah. who, who's letting her stay at her apartment, is teaching her that if she if she wants to make it by in the world, she has to have sex. She has to she has to give her body away. Yeah. Um, in fact, her other friend Peaches even had a rule in her house that you couldn't have sex in her house unless you could pay one of her bills. Because Peaches said, and I quote. Uh, if you're getting laid, there's no reason to be broke. So, like that's how that's that's the attitude. Yeah. And like these are these women are her biggest influence. Yeah, she's looking up to these women. And exactly. This is what she's being told. Gosh, um, I know. I just want to come in and be like, no, stop it. Yeah. I know it's it's awful. Um, but these are like the first women in her life that are like taking care of her and watching yeah. out for her. So she's just doing what they tell her to. Um, and that that's the attitude that she kind of takes on. Um, she's already on the fringes of society, and that's what tips the scale. Everyone in her life has basically told her, you're only good for sex. She's not. She doesn't have any skills. She doesn't have any ed- education. Um, she's been, at this point, on the run for months yeah. from, from Omni Center, from her mom, from all these other detention centers. By the way, she does eventually, she gets thrown back in a detention center. She gets thrown back to live with her mom. She runs away every time because she just, she can't live in the system she she hates it um and these women all they do all day is get high they get high and they drink and she's like this is a good time why would i do anything else and i don't have to why would i go to school i can get anything i need out here yeah um that's when she meets a gentleman by the name of cutthroat cutthroat with a k oh he sounds like a winner cutthroats uh, she's ro- rolling with some friends, and they see him in a parking lot. And they're like, go talk to him. Go ask him for a cigarette. So she walks out. She asks him for a cigarette. They exchange phone numbers, and they end up going on a date the next day. Okay. Now, um, what she's experienced up to this point, by this point, she's 16. So this has been her life for two years. 
um, by by the when she meets Cutthroat, what she's experienced is if she stays quiet and lets the man just talk and brag and blah blah blah, then he'll get her whatever she wants. So she gets into the car with Cutthroat, and that's just not how he is. He asks about her, and he wants to know about her, and he lets her talk for hours. And this is the first time in her whole life, outside of maybe her parents, who uh, this is the first person who makes her feel like what she has to say matters mm-hmm. and what she has to say is important. And that's critical for anybody, but especially for a teenager. Teenagers just want to feel heard. Um, and so she falls in love with this guy because he's, he, he's taking care of her. He's like, asking about her. He wants to know. Yeah. Um, and they end up going on a few dates and she's convinced they're in love. She's she just just knows it. He's definitely she's not the only one in his life, but she he, she knows that he uh, she's his favorite. Yeah. Um. After a few dates, he tells her that one day his plan is to be a major player. So he's going to be one of the big guys selling drugs, and he's going to have a kingdom, and she's going to be his queen, and all he needs is just a little bit money to to get there. Um, and one thing leads to another, and he starts passing her around to his buddies in exchange for money. So she, at first, volunteers. I say volunteers with air quotes because a child can never volunteer for sex. But she's doing it to raise money for this, quote, empire that she wants exactly. to Exactly, yeah. Right? She's trying to get the two of them to Vegas. Uh-huh. That's the plan here. Okay. Um, and because she starts sleeping with other men for money, he... Uh, like that's when Cutthroat really has her in his in his grip, and that's when things start to go really bad. Um, he starts mentally, physically abusing her. He tells her that she's a slut. No one will ever love her uh, because she's a whore, and and he's the, he's the only one that will ever take care of her or ever love her. So you can leave if you want to, but where are you gonna go? No one will ever want you again because you're filthy. Um, tells her all these things, demeans her. Give, she's going through like daily beatings at this oh, point, like man. and brutal. Wow. The way she describes them is just horrifying. Um, he takes any money from her that she's earning um, from having sex with men, and she's she's basically that's I, okay. This will actually be a good part to kind of talk about the difference between prostitution and sex trafficking. Prostitution, by the way, is an old word that people don't really use anymore mm-hmm. because for so long in our in our justice system, and you'll see that it happens in this case too, we use the word prostitute to or hooker in order to demean uh, women. Like, oh, well, if, if they weren't in that bad part of town selling their bodies, then th- this thing wouldn't have happened to them. Right. So, so sex workers that are murdered all the time we, throughout history, we see over and over again their deaths don't matter to the police. We've police done that are not investigating with them. your true crime stories so far. We've had a few of those. Uh, yeah, but, it yeah. happens all mm-hmm. the time. They use it as a way to say, "Well, it's not worth looking into it because she was just a two bit hooker. Who cares?" Right. Um, so the the but there are some women who voluntarily sell their bodies. They are referred to as sex workers. That is their choice. They like it. That's the, They feel like they're good at it, and they feel like that's the best way for them to earn a living. I'm not going to talk about morality or legality or anything, but that is what a sex worker is. That is prostitution. Sex trafficking victims do not have a say in what happens to them. This girl is 16 years old. She cannot consent to sexual activity. That's just how it is. When you're a child, you cannot consent, even if you want to do it, even yeah. if you want to have sex with a 30-year-old dude. If you are 16, it doesn't matter. Right. You can't consent. So children who are having sex for money are always sex trafficking victims. It doesn't matter. Yep. 
Uh, sex trafficking can also be women that are abducted and forced into it. Like, no one has to have a gun to your head to control you. They use these uh, these mental tactics to keep you under their spell. They make you. They start by making you feel like you uh, you love like they they love you and they'll take care of you. And then once they have you in the right position, they beat you and intimidate you and they trick you into believing that you have no worth. So where are you gonna go? Okay, even if you can get out, where are you gonna go? Yeah, you you don't have anything. That's what sex trafficking is, and it can happen to anyone: boys, girls, women, children, men. It doesn't matter. The, those things happen to can happen to anybody um and it it doesn't look like slavery in the way that we understand slavery you know shackles and forced labor or or something like that but it's slavery it's modern day slavery and it's happening all the time it's happening right under our nose utah is a hotbed for child sex trafficking Mm -hmm. i know i every time they come out with another story i'm like what yeah yeah it's and insane. Like they're they run child brothels in the back of massage parlors. They it's it's horrifying. It's disgusting. In fact, there are some child sex trafficking victims that still live with their families, and and whoever's trafficking them just says, "Oh, you know, I'm I'm a volunteer. I'm yep. I'm their mentor or whatever." And then they pimp them out to to other adults. It's it's disgusting, and it happens all of the time. Um, so I just wanted to clarify the difference between prostitution, sex work, and and sex trafficking, which Santoya Brown obviously very clearly is a victim of. So um, even though all of this is happening to her and he's beating her and raping her and sending her out to be raped, um, she looks past all of that. She thinks that she's in love with him. And she thinks that the reason this is all happening is her fault. She's not working hard enough. She's not bringing in enough money. So Cutthroat is stressed. And she thinks that if she can just bring in enough money to get them to Vegas, he'll stop doing this because he won't be as stressed anymore. Isn't that amazing how she still feels? It's her yeah. fault. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is very common in women. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In, in female victims, male victims tend to uh, externalize. When something bad happens to a man, they, they blame it on someone else, even if it definitely was a consequence of their own actions. Right. Just in general, men tend to externalize things. Women internalize things. So, so when something bad happens to a woman, they look at themselves and they say, "Well, what did I do to make this happen?" Yeah. Like it's it's uh, unfortunately that just tends to be the track. So, women listening, maybe take a step back and think, "Well, is this your fault or is it not?" And anyway, I need to talk for hours on that, but we still have a lot of this story to get through. Um, things only get worse from there. They end up living in a motel, which Cut pays for again with the money that Centoya has been bringing in. When they get to this hotel, like that starts to be their home base. He implements a no clothing rule. He he takes all of her clothing away from her. She has to be naked at all times unless she's going out of the, of the room to work. When she's in the room, she has to be naked. Um, that way he can rape her whenever he wants, and he does. Uh, sex. She says that sex was no longer optional. I just had to deal with it. Um, she was getting beat every single day. Um, he would grab her by the back of the head and drag her back and forth, threaten to cut her throat. Um, it was it was really really bad. Um, and then every now and then he'd give her her clothes and force her to go out and say, "Don't come back until you have money." Um, one night is is really bad. August 6, 2004. He strangles her to the point where she almost passes out. Um, he tells the, her that their week at the hotel is almost up, and if she doesn't get out on the street and start making money, don't bother coming back because um, 
she's useless. Yeah. So he gives her her clothes, he gives her a gun, and sends her out. So she starts walking uh, up and down the street, and this guy named Johnny Allen pulls up to the corner and asks if she needs a ride. So she gets in, and he looks at her, and he says, are you okay? And she tells him everything. Break she says, down. look, man, I've been with this guy the last week we've been in this hotel. I, I'm getting beat every day. She admits that she's 16. She says that she's been raped by not only Cutthroat, but all of his friends. Um, she tells this guy everything that happens to her. And you know what he says? He looks at her and says, oh, are you still down for some action? That's what he says yeah. to this 16-year-old who a just said, I've been kidnapped oh, and beat and, and raped. Saying, I need help. help yes. Me. Yes. That's what that's what happened. So she just says, yeah, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- let's go. So this scuzzball, this absolute trash monster, swings by Sonic, picks up some food. Drives on back home. Classic. I know John's a big fan of Sonic. I love Sonic. <laughs> like, that's why I threw in because I know how much John loves Sonic. Um, so they go to they go to his house. Um, now here's where the story really gets fuzzy because Centoya, the book is really incredible, but she doesn't describe this night very well. Um, I don't think a she really remembers what happened because when something really traumatic happens, you don't you you kind of black out from it. Um, but two, I also think that she's um, trying to preserve her own reputation, yeah. and this part makes her look really bad. And it is really bad. I'm not excusing murder in the slightest, but she doesn't really go into detail in, in her book. Uh, and I, I, I love the book, but I don't agree with that. I think she should have owned up a little more to what happened that night. Okay. But from what I was able to pick up from Wikipedia, even Wikipedia is unclear as to what happened that night. So, so essentially... Uh, Centoya ends up shooting Johnny in the back of the head. Um, she claims that it was in self-defense. What ended up happening was he threw her down on the bed. She told him that she didn't want to do this anymore. Um, he said, well, I already agreed to pay you $150 to get down on the bed. And so uh, he he was towering over her, even though she kept telling him no. So out of self-defense, she shot him. Now, what the prosecutors and the forensic evidence suggest happened is that he was laying down in his bed. He might even have been asleep when she shot him. And what I will say is, if you're shooting someone in self-defense, you're not shooting them in the back of the head. Like, self-defense is happening because you're squaring off with somebody. I, I do agree with that. Yeah. So, again... It's from her perspective, most of what I'm saying, and I don't think that she was completely honest in this part. Um, but regardless, what ends up happening is she kills him. Yep. She she shoots him in the head, and he dies. So take that again with a grain of salt. Um, she takes off with uh, some of his stuff. She takes his wallet. He's got $170 in cash. Uh, she steals two of his guns, and she hops into his truck uh, and takes off uh, to get back to Cutthroat. Uh, she parks the van in a Walmart parking lot and walks back to the motel. It's not long before police track her down. I'm not really sure how they knew it was her or where to look. Yeah. But uh, they do. They find her. Um, I would imagine, I mean, this is 2004 when this happens. Was, were security cameras really big? Not like they Maybe are at Walmart. Now. Okay. Walmart probably has security cameras. So. In the parking lots they even do. Yeah. 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 And like, and I'm thinking too... If she was working that area often, they probably knew, they probably knew who I'm she sure was. They so they just went to a gas station and like, have you seen this girl? They're like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She stays with this guy over here. 
But I that's all just me guessing. That's not I didn't read that sure. anywhere. Um so she gets arrested uh and she gets tossed back and forth through the legal system. At first, she tells them that she's 19 years old. Her and Cutthroat have this plan worked out well ahead of time, where if she ever gets picked up, she is 19 and she doesn't know him. Well, the second part of their plan, they can't really work out because, you know, uh, they, they, were they were found together. together. Uh-huh. Um, but he, uh, she does tell them that she's 19 um, and, and takes responsibility for everything because she doesn't want Cutthroat getting in trouble. Remember, wow. she's in love with him. Still. Um, and this time, Cutthroat, he's been in trouble so much in the past that, like, a murder charge or even an accessory in a murder would be a, like, life sentence for him, basically. Yeah. Um, so she wants to protect him. Um, and eventually they find out that she's 16. Well, that kicks her down into the juvenile court system, but they have to sit, they have to, they have a trial to decide whether or not based off of these charges, they're going to try her as an adult or a child to which I have another big issue with. I, I don't think under any circumstances, a child should ever be charged as an adult. Mm -hmm. There's a reason we treat them differently. It's because they're unable to tell the difference, especially with Centoya, with her history of abuse and her history with fetal alcohol syndrome. Like she just never had a chance to ever be anything else really. Um, and you can't treat a 16-year-old like you would treat a 30-year-old. They think differently. A child's brain is not formed yet. They don't know how to make decisions like that. Um, but the courts disagree because the prosecutor gets up and calls her a prostitute, a whore, a two-bit good-for-nothing. She knew what she was doing. She was wilding. And Satoya isn't making things easy for herself. Right. She's in prison yelling. She. Uh, this is not in the book. This is something else I read on Wikipedia. She claims uh, that they claim, rather, that she threatened to shoot uh, one of the jail attendants, like one of the people working at the jail, uh, she's like, I shot that guy in the back of the head. I'll shoot you in the head too. Blah, blah, blah. like that doesn't so things help. Things are not looking good for her. Yeah. Um, but again, she's sixteen. Uh huh. So they end up trying her as an adult. Um, and when she gets to court, there she was just like, well, there's no way. Like they're gonna get me for manslaughter. I'm gonna get what if I'm getting tried as an adult. I'm getting the lesser charge. No. Uh, she gets charged with uh, first degree, uh, I think it's second degree murder because first degree is uh, premeditated. premeditated. She hadn't met, this wasn't premeditated. But in Tennessee, that carries a life sentence, like an automatic life sentence if you're charged with murder. Um, and at 16, she gets charged with murder and sent to a, an adult women's prison. Well, no, she's, she's in a, I'm sorry, she's in a transitional prison until she turns 18, and then she gets transferred okay. to adult prison. So even though, that's the crazy part to me that didn't make sense, is you can try her as an adult, but you can't put her in adult prison. Obviously, she has to. She was in protective custody until she turned 18. So obviously, there is a difference, but you're choosing to ignore that for her sentencing, because she's a two-bit whore. Okay. All right. America. Um, so, uh, the part that I really liked about her going to prison is her defense attorney, who's a real jerk, by the way. I love him because he he really tells her how it is and tells her everything. And he's really upfront with her about everything. And she needs that. Yeah. Um, she He sits her down and says, look, you're going to prison and you're going to prison for a really long time. Um, you have two paths. You can go down the path that leads you to prison fights, drugs. You'll never have a chance to get paroled. You'll, you'll die young and you'll die in prison. 
Um, or you can get your act together. You can take any class that they offer. You can you can go to group therapy. You can you can really try to make something of yourself. It may not be a, the life that you imagine, but you can have a life in prison, and it's up to you. Uh, initially, she stumbles a few times, but she takes that to heart. Um, and she, after spending a year in solitary confinement, another thing that I have a big issue with, um, she... You're in solitary confinement? Well, she gets, yeah, so she gets into trouble and she gets thrown in solitary for for a year. She ends up being in there for 10 months because in that time she really turned things around. Wow. Um, and she gets out and she takes every class she can. She gets a job um, and she does. She ends up earning a bachelor's degree, um, which is crazy. She her. ends up getting married. Uh, there's a there's a big guy in entertainment. Uh, didn't write his name down. His last name is uh, Long, but um, she he met with Centoya uh, and fell in love with her, and they got married while she was still incarcerated. So. Uh, her case, the, a documentary is made about it, and the documentary goes viral in 2017. So this is very recently. Celebrities start seeing this, and they start freaking out. They're like, you put a rape victim, a, a sex trafficking victim in prison for life as a child? Yeah. And it just didn't sit right. So huge celebrities start the Free Centoya campaign on social media. And we're talking big-time celebrities. Rihanna got involved. Kim Kardashian got involved. Uh, T.I., uh, LeBron James, Snoop Dogg. They're all tweeting about Centoya and, and like urging the Tennessee Supreme Court and the Tennessee governor to get that woman out of prison. They're like, she has been in prison now for oh, well over a decade. Mm-hmm. She's served her time. She She's the victim in this situation, or she's a victim in this situation. Um. And at the time, she was applying for clemency, uh, but only 2% of clemency applicants in Tennessee ever make it to a hearing. Really? Yeah, because most of the time, they're just overruled before they ever even make it to a hearing, which is, I, anyway, I have so many issues with our criminal justice system. Um, But the the high-profile push is really what gets the wheels moving on, on her case. On January 7th of 2019, so this year, Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam commuted her her sentence uh, of life in prison to an August 7th release date. So she, uh, in January, the governor announces, yeah, I I reviewed this case and we we messed up. And she's getting out in August. That never happens. That never happens. That's cool. It never Never. happens. Not with a life sentence. Um, they They might win an appeal. Um, right, and get right. out through, but it's not the but governor. But the appeals, yeah, the and the appeals court is a joke, and oh. you have like years. You go decades without yeah. having your appeal ever heard, even though you are entitled to an appeal. Right. Um, but the governor himself was just like she served her time. Uh, she has ten years of probation, but she did end up getting out in August. So this is two months ago, or almost three now, um, that she was released from prison, uh, and. The governor, Governor Haslam, said, after careful consideration of what of what is a tragic and complex case, imposing a life sentence on a juvenile would require her to serve at least 51 years before being eligible for parole is just too harsh. Yeah. Um, so 
she got out. She's married. She wrote her book. Her family stood by her side. Her mom visited her like every weekend. I was going to ask you if like yeah. Her so her parents, parents ended up splitting up while she was in and out of juvie. Okay. Um, and her dad was never around all that much because he was a truck driver when she was a kid anyway. So he was gone all week and was only around weekends. But her mom really took care of her most of the time. And and her dad was there too. Actually, there are pictures in the book of her dad just giving her the biggest hug when she when she got out. Um, it's it's just it's amazing. Like this is an incredible story yeah. and finally we did something right, but it took half of her life. She was in prison for 14 and a half years, almost 15 years. She's 31 now. So it was literally half of her life that she was in prison for committing this crime. Um, and that's kind of the biggest problem with our justice system is that we blanket statement everything and we treat everything like it's the same when things are nuanced and complicated and we need to start looking at those things. But we just throw people in prison for absolutely no reason all the time. So we don't have time to look at the nuances of their case. So uh, that's my big appeal. I feel very strongly that our our criminal justice system needs a reform and like immediately um, this book, if you... I, I challenge anybody who feels differently than I do about this to read this book because once you read about the nuance of one case, you'll understand that this actually happens to people Everyone. all the time, particularly women of color all the time uh, and, and black men all the time. These sort of things are happening. Um, now, we have a very special treat because I was able to track down the publisher, track down Centoya. Um, we don't have a lot of time with her, but we have a chance to ask her a few questions. So that's coming up right after this break. On Saturday Morning Serial, we talk a lot about the big scary things like serial killers, murderers, people who wear flesh as suits. Yeah, flesh suits. People yeah. who go out for walks and never come home. Now, you two think about those things a fair amount, but how often are you thinking about the small scary things? Like, what are you going to do if you're in a car accident? Or what are you going to do if there's medical malpractice? I, I don't know if you've listened to Dr. Death, but that podcast... Oh. Oh explained all sorts of different things uh-huh. that can happen at a doctor's he office. decapitated her. Exactly. Slip and falls, wrongful death. There are all sorts of things that you need to be worrying about uh, on a day-to-day basis, not just on a weekly basis, Saturday morning serial. And that's why you need to get a hold of my friends over at Robert J. DeBry. Robert J. DeBry and Associates has 45 years of experience in all kinds of different laws. So they can help you in case you do get into a car accident or if something happens. Listen, your insurance company is not going to help you out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we see it all the time. Insurance company, as as nice as they might sound, that big building is not being built because they're paying out claims, okay? I've heard that insurance companies, they actually are called Dr. Death in some circles. That's, that's, what, that's what? what I have heard. That's what I refer to that's them as. <laughs> exactly. It's because they don't want to pay out in mm-hmm. case something happens. So Robert J. DeBryan Associates are going to make sure that your insurance company pays you what is fair in case there's an accident. Check them out online today at robertdebry.com. Or give them a call. At 801-699-9999. Hey, Santoya, how are you? Hello. I'm fine. How are you? Good. Awesome. Thanks for being on. Hey, Santoya, I got to tell you, I read your book, and it is (laughs) shocking, and I wish I had an entire hour to talk to you about it, but I do just want to kind of get into the meat of it. Uh, First of all, how long were you in prison before the governor commuted your sentence? Um, 14 years. It was almost, it was like 14 and a half years. And then he commuted it. And what was, I got out the day that it was 15 years that I've been in lockdown. I've been locked up. You sound like you're in your thirties. Like <laughs> You sound so young. 
Well, she is, because how old were you when you got charged as an adult for murder? I was 16 years old, and I'm 31 now. My goodness. Yeah. So, Centoya Brown, if you don't know, her new book is called Free Centoya, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison System. Uh, she was a 16-year-old sex trafficking victim uh, in 2006. Uh, she did murder... Uh, one of the men who picked her up and paid her for sex. Now, like I said, I wish I could talk to you forever about this, but I just have a few questions about certain parts of the book that I thought were really important. Um, You talk about early on in your life when you were in school, you got kind of labeled as the bad kid. And once you got labeled the bad kid, no one gave you the benefit of the doubt. You didn't really have any motivation to do well. You kind of thought, well, if they think of me as the bad kid, then I'm just going to be the bad kid. Can you kind of talk more about that? Right. I think I think we really got to be careful, you know, how we how we label our children and you know, you really internalize that and you see that a lot, not just, you know, with the whole bad kid thing, but you know, I go on to talk about how people just call young girls fast or promiscuous and I took that on as well. And words have power and people don't understand that. It's so easy for people to just throw words out around now especially with social media and we really need to understand you know the power that lies in the tongue right you you are what you're being told you are right especially at at an age like that you're so impressionable when you're that young right so uh and once you were labeled the bad kid it it led to behavioral problems where you were kind of bounced in and out of the system into different detention centers um you and eventually you you do run away and you meet a man by the name of Cutthroat. And for the first time, he makes you feel seen and heard. How did Cutthroat make you feel when you first started interacting with him? Right. I had always felt that, like, you know, the men that I had encountered, obviously they wanted my body. But I had never felt that I was wanted. And that carried on from when I was in school, those early years. And whenever, just by him listening to me, it's it's so crazy, just something simple as that. Just by him listening as I talked on and on and on, it made me feel that, that I was being heard. It made me feel that he was interested in me as a person. And I completely opened myself up to him in a way, you know, that was not healthy. Like, he didn't have any good intentions. All I saw was that, okay, this man wants me. Like, this man feels he accepts me. Right. Well, and that and the women in your life also had been teaching you to uh, stay quiet you don't talk, let the men talk. Men like talking about themselves, but Cutthroat was kind of the first guy that made you feel like you're, you're, right. what you had to say mattered and what you had to say had value, and it was the first time uh, in a long time that that had happened, but things kind of changed, and you end oh, up yeah. running away with Cutthroat. Can you kind of explain? Because it was really hard to read uh, your experience with him staying in, in those hotel rooms what was life like living with him once once he had kind of shown you the other the other face? I mean, it was horrible, and and you know you always hear you talk about this this cycle, this abuse cycle, where something happens, and then you think, okay, it's it's not going to be like that. You know, this was just a one time thing, and with me, it was like, okay, I I must be messing up, and. I'm just going to do better, and and he's going to be happy, and we're going to be happy. And I can remember when I would go out, and I would be coming back to the hotel room, and I'd have this money crumpled up in my pocket thinking, oh, he's going to be so happy with me when I make it back. He's going to be so happy with me when he sees that 
that, you know, I'm contributing and what I brought to the table and now we can get a hotel for another few days. And, you know, it was just always like this hope that like, okay, this is going to make him happy with me. This is going to make him want me again. This is going to make me feel accepted again. And it, it just never happened that way. And it was a vicious cycle. And I think that's kind of the, that's kind of the thing that people don't understand about sex trafficking. And you make a big point in your book to, to, to distinguish the difference between prostitution and sex trafficking, um, even though you, you kind somewhat were there of your own volition because you wanted to please cutthroat, he was manipulating you. And he was, he was controlling your actions through sex, through money. He kept you naked in that hotel room. He wouldn't let you leave. Uh, in, in every way, he had complete control over what you were doing. Uh, can you kind of explain to our audience what the difference is in your mind between prostitution and sex trafficking? Because that played a big role in you getting charged as an adult. Absolutely. I think one, one thing that I learned from in slavery Tennessee, an organization in my native state, and I stand by it, is there is no such thing as a teen prostitute. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can look up the federal statute. Anyone under the age of 18 who is a minor who does not have the capacity to consent to sexual relations with an adult, they are a victim of commercial sexual exploitation. That is sex trafficking. There's no such thing as a minor who is, number one, having sex with adults, and number two, who is selling themselves to adults of their own volition. Like there, there is no volition there. It doesn't take, is that you don't have to be coerced. You don't have to be held at gunpoint. Like you don't have the capacity to consent period. Right. You're a child. Right. Right. Well, and, and when the defense attorney is going after you, uh, I'm sorry, not the defense attorney, the uh, prosecutor is going after you. He's referring to you as a prostitute. He's even like, even went so far as to call you a slut. And, Um, that is what ends up, honestly, it sounds like from what I read in your book is what ends up with you getting charged as an adult. Um, is that true? Yeah. So we didn't have an understanding whatsoever of, you know, sex trafficking and what it meant for minors. Like you got to think I come from a state where it was only 10 years prior to my incarceration that it was outruled that promiscuity was was an affirmative defense for an adult who was charged with statutory rape, meaning a grown 40-year-old man could say that it's okay that I had sex with this 12-year-old because she's had sex before. Oh, that's right. So that's the mindset that we were dealing with. And so it was just, it was just, it was horrible. You know, all these factors at play and there was absolutely no consideration to what I had been through at that time and to the, to the outlying circumstances. All they saw was, was a set of facts where they interpreted it in the worst possible light. Now, I, again, you got to just read the book because there's so much. Free Centoya, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison System. Um, her story is just, it'll break your heart. But it has such a happy ending because in prison, you really turn it around. Um, one of your defense attorneys gives you this advice that is, Go take every class you can. Stay out of trouble. Don't get involved with gangs because people in prison uh, who who get involved with that stay in prison. And you end up getting your GED. You end up getting a bachelor's degree. Um, you end up getting married. Uh, this is this is all crazy. So you turn it around and you <laughs> end up getting your sentence commuted. Uh, and you're out of prison less than two months ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, what? Less than two- well, well, it's been two months. It has. It was August seventh, so a little over wow. two months. A little over two months. 
Um, what has been the biggest transition? How's the transition out of prison life into real life treating you? Um, it's been good. Like I'd say like the biggest like shock, I guess, is how expensive everything is. Yeah. Oh, girl, like, I know it. Right? It's ridiculous out here. It is for sure. Uh, again, her name is Centoya Brown Long. Her book, Free Centoya, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison System, is the most stunning book I've read in a very long time. Centoya, thank you so much for coming oh, on and chatting you. with us. Thank you. Y'all take care. See you now. Bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.